The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borre, Part 2, The Rebirth, The Beginnings of Modern Philosophy. Things began to get better. The economy improved. There was a return to building, cathedrals, universities, cities, a return to luxuries, paper, plays, music, a return to invention, the compass, printing, and a return to exploration, Africa, the New World, the Pacific. It was the Renaissance. A rebirth, which we date from roughly 1400 to 1600 or so. These were vigorous times, interesting times, dangerous times. The aristocracy had won the day, over the fledgling monarchies and even over the church's heavy hand, at least for now. So there were tons of these upper-crust types, often with lots of money, totally in love with the idea of themselves. Religious and other thinkers were freed, to one extent or another, from the powerful central authority of the church to create their own very reasonable or totally outlandish religious philosophies. And merchants found that money can buy almost anything, including the traditional respect that the aristocracy received. In fact, Aristocratic title and merchant wealth were a perfect combination for a good marriage. These aristocrats and merchants believed in the perfectibility of mankind. We could become better human beings. And more importantly, we could become more powerful, richer, more aristocratic, if you will. Much attention was paid, even among those who were not nobles, to behaving like a gentleman or a lady, as reflected, for example, in Baldassar Castiglione's Guide to Proper Conduct, the Book of the Courtier. The aristocrats were practical, pragmatic, interested in real events and real people in the real world. They were individualistic and competitive and very dog-eat-dog. They liked their politics, and they liked to play rough. But they were also anti-intellectual, even cocky in their ignorance. They tended to think of scholars as dry, impractical types who might be able to forecast eclipses, but probably couldn't tie their own shoes, much less make money or run estates. And the aristocrats were superstitious, spiritualistic, fascinated by astrology, ancient Egypt, the Kabbalah, alchemy, magic, a Renaissance version of our own New Age movement. Two events in particular stand out as representative of the Renaissance. The first was the revolution in printing. Johann Gutenberg, circa 1400 to 1467, of Mainz, invented the movable type printing press and printed the Gutenberg Bible, 
1455. The Gutenberg Bible was the first major book printed with this new technology, although it was not Gutenberg's first work. Nor was Gutenberg's Bible intended for common reading. It is an edition of the Latin Vulgate, and was designed to be read from a lectern for a Catholic Mass. Many copies were probably bought by wealthy and pious laymen and then donated to churches or to monasteries. Today, few copies remain in religious institutions. Most are now owned by university libraries and scholarly institutions. The first Gutenberg Bible reached America in 1847, and it is now at the New York Public Library. Only 21 complete copies survive, and they're estimated to be worth 25 to $35 million each. The second event representative of the Renaissance was the discovery of the New World. And this meant lots of gold and silver and a stoked-up international economy, as well as an outlet for those discontented with life in Europe. Lebensraum. Room to live, as the Germans call it. This, of course, is usually credited to Christopher Columbus, 1451 to 1506. Humanism. Another aspect of the Renaissance was its humanism, meaning an interest in or focus on human beings and their well-being, here and now, rather than in God and the afterlife, or in the activities of saints and biblical heroes of eons ago. Petrarch, 1304-1374, for example, wrote history with an emphasis on personality, and is often considered the first humanist, at least since the ancients. There were several philosophers in the early Renaissance who particularly expressed this idea of humanism. Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, 1463-1494, believed that the philosophers, that is, Plato and Aristotle, and Christianity basically agree. He argued for free will, and saw mankind as the connection between the physical world and the spiritual world. Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam, 1467-1536, recommended a compromise between faith and humanism. He tried hard to prevent the excesses of the Reformation. A strong believer in free will, Erasmus wrote against the concept of justified wars and asked his readers to exercise tolerance, friendliness, and gentleness. Sir Thomas More, 1478-1535, was a friend of Erasmus and a chancellor to the infamous King Henry VIII. Thomas More wrote a story called Utopia, in which he described a perfect society, much along the lines of Erasmus's compromise between faith and and humanism. When Moore refused to recognize his sovereign as the head of the English Church, Henry VIII had him beheaded. The Catholic Church responded by making him a saint. Niccolo Machiavelli, 1469-1527, to 
had quite a different outlook on things than these philosophers, still, however, typifying humanism. He wrote about hardball politics in a book called The Prince, published in 1513. Machiavelli's reputation became so negative that Old Nick became a nickname for the devil himself. But few people realize that Machiavelli followed up the prince with the discourses, in which he discusses democracy as the political system that he would prefer to see. For this, Machiavelli deserves credit as the first social psychologist after the Greeks. And this renaissance was particularly the heyday of artists and authors. Among the artists were Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo in Italy, Albrecht Dürer in Germany. Later in the Renaissance, we have El Greco in Spain, and later still, Rembrandt in Holland. Among the literary types, we have Montaigne in France, Cervantes in Spain, and none other than William Shakespeare in England. And there were many others. The Reformation. In the Middle Ages, the ultimate authority was pretty clearly God, and the Pope was God's mouthpiece. Heresy was not uncommon, of course, but excommunication and monastic imprisonment were the major punishments. Then, in 1215, came the Inquisition, and heresy became punishable by death. Spain, in particular, was a land of religious fanatics. Torquemada, the Grand Inquisitor of Spain from 1483 to 1498, made the Spanish Inquisition a household word. Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546, posted his 95 Theses. These are points of disagreement with the way that the church was doing things. He posted these on the door of the church at Wittenberg. Now, this may seem like vandalism, but in fact, the church door was at this time like a bulletin board. This was a place of public gathering where other, where other people would see each of these 95 theses and could read them, comment on them, and discuss them. Each thesis focused on one thing that the church was doing wrong. For instance, Martin Luther focused on the sale of indulgences. This meant that if you were planning on committing a sin you could pay in advance for forgiveness. Then you could commit your sin with a free conscience. Luther also denied the primacy of the Pope. He emphasized the idea that humans are born in sin, that we lack free will, and our absolute need was for the grace of God. Luther furthermore translated the Bible into German. And his dialect became the basis for standard literary German to the present day. He also wrote some pretty nasty papers condemning the peasants and the Jews. John Calvin, 1509-1564, was from northern France. Upon becoming a Protestant, Calvin was forced to flee from Catholic France and wound up in Switzerland. 
There, he preached unconditional obedience to God and a new doctrine of predestination. Now, the doctrine of predestination says that since God is omniscient, God already knows who is going to heaven and who is not. Calvinist theology is often described as comprising five points. These five points of Calvinism, although not actually used by Calvin himself, summarize Calvin's writings and the theology of Reformed churches in general. They are sometimes referred to by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. The T stands for total depravity. U is unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P is the perseverance of the saints. Total depravity asserts that every person is born into the world enslaved to sin. Thus, all people by their own nature are morally unable to choose to follow God and be saved. Unconditional election asserts that God chose from eternity whom he would save, and these people are called the elect. And God also chose whom he would condemn to hell. These are the unelect. Now, one's choosing, one's belonging among the elect, is not based upon your virtue, merit, or faith. Rather, it's based upon God's mercy alone, since even the best human efforts are like filthy rags to God. Limited atonement implies that Jesus' death atoned for only the sins of the elect. Jesus' death is seen as a human sacrifice, akin to the sacrifices of lambs at the temple in the Hebrew Scripture. Jesus' blood satisfied God's need for blood to pay for sin. Irresistible grace asserts that God's saving grace overcomes any resistance by the individual. When God decides to save someone, that individual will certainly be saved. And finally, the perseverance of the saints means that once a person is saved, that person will continue in the faith until the end. If someone apparently falls away from the faith, then that person either will eventually return or never had true faith to begin with. As Calvin gained political as well as spiritual power, he ruled Geneva as a religious dictatorship, not unlike Iran or Afghanistan. No drinking, no dancing, no gambling, no icons, candles, or incense, and obligatory church attendance for everyone. In 1553, Calvin and his reformers denounced the Spanish Unitarian Michael Servetus for heresy. A Unitarian is someone who does not believe in the Trinity, perhaps the worst heresy of all. Even today, Protestant churches in the United States will not accept Unitarians as true Christians. And this is despite the fact that the word Trinity is mentioned nowhere in the Bible. Servetus was arrested after attending a church service in Geneva preached by John Calvin. Servetus was sentenced to death for denying the Trinity and infant baptism. He was burned at the stake 
just outside of Geneva, with what was believed to be the last copy of his book chained to his leg. Historians record that as Servetus was being consumed by fire, he cried out from the flames, Jesus, Son of the Eternal God, have mercy on me, which was, of course, heretical. Had he cried out, Jesus, Eternal Son of God, have mercy on me, that would have been orthodox theology. Incidentally, Michael Savitas was the first European to describe the function of pulmonary circulation, an achievement that was not widely recognized at the time since most copies of his book were burned because of his persecution by religious authorities. It was not until William Harvey's publication of findings from his dissections in 1616 that the function of pulmonary circulation was widely accepted by physicians. Henry VIII ruled England from 1509 to 1547. Having a hard time conceiving a male heir, he divorced and executed one wife after another. When the Pope refused to give Henry an easy divorce from Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII declared himself the head of the English Church and took all monastic property for his treasury. But the doctrines of the Church remained fundamentally Catholic. Although usually considered Protestant, the Anglican Church and its offspring, the Episcopalian Church, maintained generally good relationships with the Catholic Church to this day. On the other hand, Philip II of Spain, who ruled between 1556 and 1598, wished to restore Catholicism to its former glory. His domestic policy consisted of encouraging the Spanish Inquisition, resulting in the mass burning of heretics and severe oppression of the remaining Moors and Jews in Spain. Philip was especially angered by the War for Independence of the Netherlands. The Netherlands were declaring their independence from Spain, and this war was being led by Protestants. Elizabeth I of England, who ruled from 1558 and 1603, and incidentally who also was courted by Philip II, secretly encouraged piracy against Philip's fleets, which, coincidentally, were bringing loads of silver from the New World. The hostilities culminated in the destruction of Philip's great Spanish armada in 1588. The Reformation led the Catholic Church to reform itself, but not before executing a very large number of Protestants for heresy. The Protestants executed Catholics and other Protestants as well. Catholic or Protestant, these were not proud days for religion. Science in mathematics, a number of advances were made. Francis Pallas of Nice invented the decimal point in 1492. Thomas Harriot, the astronomer who discovered sunspots, created what are now the standard symbols used in algebra. John Napier of Scotland invented logarithms, which in turn permitted William Outrud to develop the slide rule, which could be considered a simple analog computer in 1622. Descartes himself invented analytic geometry 
biology and medicine also had a few breakthroughs. Paracelsius recognized that life was based on chemical and physical sources and should be explained thus. In 1553, Michael Servetus, the same one that Calvin had burned at the stake in Geneva, discovered pulmonary circulation. William Harvey, a physician to King James I and also King Charles I, explained the circulation of blood for the first time. He also promoted the idea that every animal comes from an egg, an age when spontaneous generation of flies was the established belief. Instrumentation drove much of the progress in science. The compound microscope was invented in 1595 by Zacharias Janssen of Middleburg in Holland. The telescope was invented by his neighbor, a German named Hans Lippershey, in 1608. Galileo invented a thermometer in 1603, and his student, Evangelista Torricelli, invented the barometer in 1643. And a quick side note, glass lenses had been around for some time. The reading stones, or magnifying glasses, existed at that date from about 300 A.D. in Venice. Roger Bacon suggested the principle of reading spectacles in 1264, and the first spectacles show up in Florence, Italy, around 1280. A nobleman named Amati is suggested as a possible inventor. They were considered a near miracle by the elderly of the time. On the other hand, spectacles for the nearsighted only show up in the 1500s, on the nose of Pope Leo, no less. And bifocals would have to wait for Benjamin Franklin to invent them in 1780. But back to our story. There were, in addition to the mathematicians and the biologists and those in medicine, also the great astronomers. Nicholas Copernicus of Poland, 1473 to 1543, introduced the heliocentric solar system. The church, of course, asked, why would God not put us, his special creation, human beings, in the center of the universe? In fact, how can this belief that the earth is moving around the sun be reconciled with scripture? And in fact, doesn't this view conflict with direct experience? We have the sensation of standing still while watching the sun move past. Johannes Kepler, 1571 to 1680, added the laws of planetary motion, i.e. that the planets have elliptic, not circular paths. Now note that this implies something less than perfection, not exactly what God would do, even if he did put the sun in the center. Now, if astronomers were having a hard time with the church, heaven forbid you elaborated on Copernicus. Giordano Bruno, 1548-1600, to 1600, of Nola, near Naples, believed in an infinite universe without center, with innumerable earths traveling around innumerable suns, each with plants and animals and people. Bruno was a pantheist. Pantheism is the belief that God is found throughout nature, that God is, in fact, identical with the universe. When people say God is in everything and everyone, they are, in fact, making a pantheistic statement, 
a statement that would have gotten them executed until fairly recently. Now, Bruno had a powerful effect on Baruch Spinoza, who we will discuss in a future podcast. After a brief stint as a Dominican monk, Bruno wandered around the cities of Europe until a Venetian aristocrat invited him to return. That same aristocrat turned him into the Inquisition in 1592. Bruno was imprisoned for eight years, but refused to recant. Finally, on February 17, 1600, Bruno was burned at the stake in the Square of the Flowers in Rome, naked and with a nail driven through his tongue, a fairly common punishment for heretics. In 1889, a statue of Giordano Bruno was erected in that same square, and his death is commemorated by freethinkers worldwide every year since. Education. I should add a little note here about education during these heady times. In the 1600s, despite all the great scientific and philosophical gains, about 80% of the population was illiterate. Now, not the modern functionally illiterate, meaning they're not very good at it, but totally unable to read and write. Nevertheless, change was coming. For example, in 1619, the Duke of Saxe-Weimar in Germany ordered compulsory education for all children between ages 6 and 12 years old, with a month of vacation at harvest time so that they could continue to work on the farm. This is practically the same system that we have today, including summer vacation. John Comenius, a bishop of the Moravian Brethren, wrote the first printed textbook, illustrated no less, which was used for the next 250 years in the Didactica Magna, the great art of teaching. He outlined principles of education that could be used by most any school board today. Note, however, for all of the religious reform and scientific progress, over one million people, mostly older women, were executed as witches during the time of the papal bull concerning witches, issued in 1484 through the 1700s. There was even a witch-hunting manual first published in 1486 called the Malus Maleficarum, the Witch's Hammer, how to recognize witches, how to torture them into a confession, how to effectively kill them. And throughout the world, women continue to be mistreated today. The education of girls continues to be resisted throughout the Middle East, mostly on religious grounds. Note as well that slavery, which was a minor issue in the Middle Ages, what with the convenience of serfs, slavery had returned in Spain and Portugal after their conquests of vast areas of Africa and the Americas. Many people in Spain believed that no decent Christian should perform manual labor. Protestant nations and their colonies found the practice of slavery equally profitable. Although slavery still exists in some third world nations, it has died out in most of the world, mostly because the Industrial Revolution made it too costly, not because we were offended by the practice. 
That being said, the story of the Renaissance can be a model and inspiration for a rebirth of education and culture throughout the world. A reformation is still desperately needed within religions today. And the triumph of enlightenment and reason holds the promise of liberation for people around the world. But first, we need to live up to the principles rediscovered in the Renaissance. Thank you.